I felt a little bit of a loss of identity and that wasn't really talked about with me and that's something that I hope my story can bring awareness to because everybody talked about anxiety and depression and stress issues after getting hurt and I don't want to say I didn't deal with those things because I think we all do to an extent. That was certainly there, but it felt like my concerns were different, but it wasn't being addressed. For me, I was overwhelmed with not knowing who I was anymore. There is always hope, and you are not alone. Hi, I'm Christabel Braden, and this is my brain injury podcast, Hope Survives. Here, we share information, education, and support for the brain injury community. This is an uplifting podcast to bring hope to your darkest days. As a survivor of traumatic brain injury and multiple concussions, I know what it's like to struggle to find hope. I don't want anyone to feel as alone as I did. And that's why I started my online community called Hope After Head Injury. This podcast is an extension of that, and I'd love to invite you to join along as we explore the realities of life with brain injury with messages of encouragement, interviews with doctors and professionals, and survivor stories. No matter where you're at on your journey, there is always hope. With a little hope, you can make it through today. With a little faith, someday you'll get through the pain. Just a little love is enough to light the way through your darkest night. Hope survives. Hope survives. Hope survives. Welcome back to Hope Survives Podcast. We are here today for Season 2, Episode 10, and it's going to be a great one. Our special guest is Callie Leonardelli. She is an intern at Pink Concussions. She is such an inspiring survivor. She has suffered multiple concussions. When she was 16, she was pole vaulting and landed her head on the track. And while she was recovering, she received another injury. She's going to share her story today. But one of the things that strikes me so much about her is her ability to articulate how she feels, how she was feeling, and just some of that struggle with a loss of identity. She has been an athlete in gymnastics and track and field her whole life. And after her injuries, she couldn't even walk. So she had to really deal with that loss of identity from identifying herself as an athlete to now not knowing who she is and how to identify herself and who her friends are and what to do. And she so beautifully shares her story today. I know you're going to be inspired by her. So uh, I also wanted to mention Pink Concussions is a great organization. I I mentioned Callie was an intern with them. But back in season one, I interviewed the Pink Concussions founder, Catherine Snedeker. So make sure to go back and check out that episode as well if you're interested. They do a lot of work on female concussions. So 
That's it for today's episode. I'm so glad you are here. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be really great. And let's get started. Hope After Head Injury is a global online community for brain injury survivors, caregivers, families, advocates, anyone who'd want to be part of the brain injury community. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook support group. You can search Hope After Head Injury support group on there. We also have a page and an Instagram. And every Tuesday at 7 p.m., on the Hope After Hendry Facebook page, there's a live chat. So I've been doing this live video for over five years on the Hope After Head Injury Facebook page. So you can join us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, and that has become just such a beautiful community. We also have a monthly Zoom support meeting. You can join that by visiting hopeafterheadinjury.com slash community. And the link for that is in the description of the podcast. We meet once a month, encourage each other on our journeys. You can either have your camera on or off, however you're comfortable. You can just listen or you can come and share some of your story and encouragement with others. It's a great time to know that we are in this together and we are stronger together as a brain injury community. I also run a group called Brain Injury Bible Study. There's also a podcast for that. If you search Brain Injury Bible Study, that should come up. And we have Zoom meetings occasionally as well and a Facebook group. You can find that information if it's something you'd be interested in. It's basically we combine faith and brain injury recovery together in that group. Now, finally, I just want to share a reminder that this podcast is for education and informational purposes only, and it's not intended for medical advice. If you need specific medical advice, please consult your physician. Now let's get started in today's interview. I'm so excited to welcome Callie to the Hope Survives podcast. I first saw Callie on the Pink Concussions Instagram because she's one of their interns this year. And she did an Instagram story takeover and talked about post-concussive syndrome and being in school and what that's like. And I thought to myself, I have to get this girl on my podcast. So we're finally here. Welcome. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for this. I, When you reached out at first, I was like, oh, that's a cool opportunity. And it's kind of surreal that it came to life. Oh, well, I'm so glad to have you. And so I would love for you to just, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Callie. I'm a 20-year-old student. I go to college for physical therapy. So uh, the program that I'm in we get a bachelor's in health science, and then we get our doctorate in physical therapy, um, which is a three-year grad program. So I entered into this program because I wanted to be a physical therapist, obviously, um, since middle school, but I came to love the program after meeting some physical therapists who graduated from Quinnipiac that helped me in my recovery. And so when I came and I toured, I just felt super at home. I loved the school, loved the professors, the coursework, and I felt that my experiences personally and my the school's knowledge together could really help me as a physical therapy student. So 
I've been doing that for the past two years. This is my sophomore year. I initially took a gap year after high school. Um, I got hurt the end of my junior year. So I missed my entire senior year of high school. And then I decided to take another gap year for to focus on recovery and to just prioritize my health. I started interning with Catherine at Pink Concussions, and I'm so thankful to her and all of the other amazing women that are a part of Pink. They just do incredible things, and they're in a field that really needs to be talked about more. Um, so I've been working with them, and through Pink, I got to meet Christabel, and we did a little panel together over the summer for the Pink X Summit, and um, yeah. Yeah, that's all so great. So Callie, one of the things that struck me the most about when you were sharing on their social media was with how much grace and also education that you talked about your own symptoms. And so you have some great coping strategies and just some really great things in place. So I'd love to hear about those. But before we go into that, would you be willing to talk about how did your concussion happen? What has the recovery journey looked like? And then we'll talk about some strategies that you have found that's helped. My first injury uh, happened while I was pole vaulting. So I was at a track and field meet and I went up into the air and don't really remember what happened, but came back down, landed on my head on the track and in the process got whiplash when I was falling. Um, so that was the first diagnosed concussion that I've ever had. We suspect that I probably had some others, but the awareness and education wasn't there. I didn't know what a concussion was. Even when I fell, I was like, oh, my head hurts and I'm feeling a little off and kind of giddy. And I don't know, I'm fine. And thankfully I had an amazing coach who took me out of um, the meet and said, regardless of if it's a concussion or not, she's going to sit out. Um, you're going to be done. You should go to the doctor. Athletic training helped out. And I was in the midst of recovering from that concussion when I was hit in the head with a lacrosse ball um, that the lacrosse field is inside of the track. Um, so lacrosse was playing and accidentally um, my head got in the way somehow. And that time my symptoms were dramatically different um, and it didn't really feel like a concussion after experiencing the first one. Um, but because of that overlap in time and just, uh, I guess, the double impact injury type of thing, I developed new symptoms like I couldn't balance. So I wasn't able to walk by myself. I couldn't swallow for a little while. Um, everything was double vision, um, blurry. I was far more dizzy and nauseous and it just felt very different. And we went to the emergency room that time. I hadn't gone the first time because we just were able to go to my pediatrician, but because of the severity of my symptoms, we did go to the ER. Um, I was admitted for a few days and then I was discharged into therapies and we started intensive physical, occupational, speech, vision, aquatic, um, pretty much everything they had we tried or we were doing. And I just wasn't in a place that I could go to school yet, largely because of my lack of independence with walking. Um, 
it wasn't considered safe. And so we did school from home. Um, I had some wonderful teachers come to my house to tutor me uh, after school. And we would meet one-on-one. -on -one. We would, they would read the material to me because I couldn't really read yet. We would talk about it. We got creative in making a brain out of Play-Doh instead of looking at um, a piece of paper with a brain on it. And we spoke my essays instead of making me write them, things like that. And that was really essential, I think, to my recovery to be able to take that time to focus on my therapies without the pressure of having to be in school at the same time and knowing that I couldn't really walk and I couldn't do a lot of the things that my classmates were doing. For me, that worked better. And eventually as I got better and as I became a little more independent, I'd say about six months after I got hurt, I was walking somewhat by myself. So I was able to go in to have a little bit of a social aspect of school because that's a huge part of recovery and being a teenager, being with your friends, being with your peers and not just doctors and family, I think is essential to recovery. Um, so we did start weaning me into going for um, like study halls with a friend or sitting in a classroom. And then I would still have the tutoring, but I could at least sit there acting like I was learning while I would still receive it at home. Um, so we did that and near the end of the year, um, I decided I would take a gap year because my treatment team just thought that was best. My school counselors and I all agree in my family that I still needed more time that while I was walking, I still wasn't reading. My cognitive skills weren't there. Um, still having a lot of vestibular and vision issues. So I took that gap year, which was so hard at the time. It felt like the world was ending because everybody was moving on and I wasn't. But looking back, that's one of the best decisions I made. And I'm so thankful I did. Most of my friends now don't even know that I took a gap year because it's only one year, even if it's longer than that. At the point that you're in college age doesn't matter like it does when you're younger and your health really comes first. And I think if I were to go to college, I probably would have ended up taking the semester off once I got there because I just wouldn't have been ready. And you can learn other skills during that gap year. So I focused on um, fostering sick rescue puppies to help form a schedule and get me walking and doing therapy exercises with them. And I volunteered at a local rehab facility for the elderly. So I got some exposure to physical therapy while not without having that pressure of learning at the same time and um, being able to take time off as my symptoms increased, which when you get to college, it's a lot harder to take a day off. If you're just volunteering, it's a lot easier to be able to say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't come in today. Can I come in a different day this week um, versus missing classes and classes and work and presentation and tests and all of that. So I came to college and I'm now four years out, I think, from my injury. Um, I'm in a completely different place. I'm so thankful to my treatment team and my family and just everybody who supported me that didn't give up when things looked like it wasn't really going to get that much better. Um, my 
doctor now who's been seeing me since I got hurt once said to my family and I that as long as you guys will let me strike out, I'll keep swinging. And we had to strike out a lot with different things. We had to try different things and try kind of out of the box um, therapies and medications and do things differently than what the textbook would say. But we worked together and are slowly coming up with those answers that we've been looking for. Um, so now that I'm at school, I've definitely needed accommodations and it's different than what my friends and peers are doing. And I take longer, I need big font, I can't copy notes from the smart board as well or as quickly as my classmates. So I usually need them um, in a PowerPoint version that I can print out and have on paper in front of me. Um, I have to take my test somewhere different because I need the big font and extra time. And while that all felt overwhelming at the beginning, I've come to realize that nobody else really cares because everybody's going through their own stuff. And so me not being in the classroom on test day, nobody else is thinking, where is Callie? They're thinking, how am I going to do this test? Do I, <laughs> did I study enough? It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so my little worries about fitting in and being different have turned out to not really come true. Yeah, I can relate so much. I can relate so much to that. I I remember being in, in that place too. And at first you feel weird because you didn't need accommodations before your injury. Mm -hmm. And so adjusting to that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the emotional journey. So you've done a really excellent job explaining kind of some of your rehab and the treatment and how things have gone. But what was it like for you to go from being in track and field, which clearly you would be good at running and balance to not being able to walk? And how did your how did you hold on to hope? And what did your emotional journey look like through your whole life changing? It was definitely confusing at the beginning. Um, I think that's the best way to describe it, just kind of a sense of confusion and not really knowing what was going on and not knowing the extent of it either, because after my first injury, I didn't have the same impact. And while it did change my life, it was very different than being a gymnast and pole vaulter who practiced seven days a week for five or six hours a day pretty much 365 days a year to not being able to walk by myself. That was foreign. That was something that I had never experienced before because if I had an injury, I could use crutches or I could walk in a boot or something. It wasn't like, I don't want to say I was bedridden, but I really couldn't do anything without the assistance of my family or therapy. And so I just felt like, okay, well, it'll get better. It's only going to be a couple of weeks. And I was supposed to be competing at our regional meet for gymnastics um, as part of the state team and then states for track in the next week or two after getting hurt. And I remember telling my coaches like, oh, I'll be there. I'll, I'll be back by then. I'll be fine. And looking back, I can see the hesitation in everybody's eyes. And I remember going to my doctor and saying, no, I'm fine. Like symptoms are gone. And that was clearly not true. And I was not released, um, which was a very smart move on their behalf. Um, but I sat there frustrated that I couldn't be there with my team, helping my team, even just supporting my team. I had to do that from home and that didn't feel right to me because I've always been there. And 
I think I held on to hope at the beginning by assuming that it was going to get better really quickly. And then when it didn't, I was hit with a second wave of kind of grief of, okay, at this point, they said contact sports are off the table or gymnastics and track. And then any contact sport is pretty much off the table. And that was when it really hit me that I shouldn't reach out to college coaches anymore. I shouldn't um, identify as an athlete. And that's, that was super false because we can be an athlete without competing on a team and doing the things we've always done. I just needed to find a new outlet that didn't include flying through the air um, or knocking heads with anybody or anything. But I felt a little bit of a loss of identity and that wasn't really talked about with me. And that's something that I hope my story can bring awareness to because everybody talked about anxiety and depression and um, like stress issues after getting hurt. And I don't want to say I didn't deal with those things because I think we all do to an extent, but maybe not clinically um, significant, but at that subclinical level of worry and fear and wondering what's going to happen in the future, that was certainly there, but it wasn't to the degree that I felt like it should be. And I felt like my concerns were different, but it wasn't being addressed. So I thought I, I was different and something was wrong with me and I was broken because maybe I should feel depressed and maybe I should be overwhelmed with anxiety. But for me, I was overwhelmed with not knowing who I was anymore because I couldn't say, hi, I'm Callie and I do gymnastics and track. All of a sudden it was like, hi, I'm Callie. I can't walk. I'm in sunglasses. My words are incoherent. I have all these symptoms and that's not how I identified, I tried to keep my brain injury separate because we're not our brain injury. It's just a piece of our story, but I didn't know how to describe myself or what fun facts to share when we do icebreakers or what to do after school or anything. Really, I lost all of that time that suddenly I had five or six free hours every single day and I couldn't fill it with what I have since I was eight years old. So I turned to more of a self-confidence issue, I would say. And I don't know that there's a diagnosis for that. Maybe there is, but I just struggled with self-esteem and self-confidence and believing in myself that I still had capabilities. They were just going to have to be different. And I was going to have to start at the bottom somewhere and find new hobbies and interests and grow from there. Um, but during that time, I had a lot of nausea and with the migraines, I was vomiting. So I had some weight loss. I just wasn't eating very well. And that eventually turned into more of a control mechanism and outlet for me to take out what I didn't know how to explain in words and put it just to myself. So if I didn't eat or if I chose to be picky about what I was eating, some of that very physiological and very based in how I was feeling migraine-wise or vomiting. But as I did that, I learned that I kind of numbed out my emotions and it was a way for me to not forget about everything that was going on. But when you're not eating, your brain checks out a little bit and it eventually developed into either REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport, um, or an eating disorder. And 
that was really hard for me to accept because we needed to address that. Once my malnutrition and weight loss got to a certain point, pretty much everything stopped um, in my treatment for my brain injury because suddenly my priority and my treatment team's priority and my family's was getting me to gain weight, getting me to eat, getting me nourished because nothing else was going to help until those baseline life-sustaining were back in play. And through years of therapy and seeing a dietitian and working through that type of thing. Um, and I say that type of thing, it's not different than a concussion. It's the same thing in the sense that it is very real to you, regardless of what your symptoms are, what people are labeling it as. There's no super clear diagnostic for it, just like we can't take an x-ray of our brain and say you're concussed. People labeled it as different things. Some people said, oh, she has anorexia. Some said reds. Some said, I think it's a kid who's just struggling to adjust. And I don't know that any single one of those diagnoses is correct or incorrect. They're all right in their own way. But it gets you a little caught up in what's true and what's really going on. Is it in my head? Am I making this up? And it took a lot of therapy for me to realize I'm not. And it was a way that I was coping. And it was just as significant as my brain injury. And I needed to treat it and work on recovery just as hard, maybe even harder, because it's something that is different to explain to people. If I say I have a brain injury, people respond with empathy. If I say, I struggle to eat. People are like, okay, so just eat. Go get some food and eat. It's not that hard. Um, but for me, it was a struggle with textures and with how food tasted because I didn't have a sense of smell or taste for a while and how food felt after I ate it. Was I vomiting? Was I nauseous? Did it make me feel icky? Because if it did, I didn't really want to. And I was initially frustrated with my treatment team for making me stop everything brain injury wise and focus on that, but I definitely needed to. And as I went through therapy and seeing a dietitian and talking with treatment centers, I came to realize that it's a struggle that a lot of kids deal with, especially with these concussions that are happening. When you get one, you're sidelined and you get another because you're sitting on the sidelines. So suddenly a different sports ball hits you in the head. Um, that's very out of your control. And a lot of my therapists, both brain injury and eating disorder had said, you know, this is something we see kind of a lot, but it's not talked about. And it's an anecdotal thing because it's not been studied. And just hearing that made me feel a lot less alone um, and a lot more like I could talk to it. And as soon as I started talking about it and opening up to my providers brain injury wise and saying, hey, you know, I have this history of malnutrition and weight loss they were very receptive and it was no longer this push of you need psychological help. It was like, she's finally come to terms with it and now we can move forward and focus on integrating the two, um, which is ultimately the end goal. But for me, I needed to take that break and I needed that wake up call that you can get mental health support without it meaning you're making everything else up or you're crazy. It's, really normal and something that's really hard, but usually needed at some point. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with, with us today. 
I think you touched on some really, really important pieces. The loss of identity after brain injury or concussion is something that I think each of us experiences in a different way and in our own way. And there is this aspect of, I had this one life and suddenly it's unattainable. I don't have it anymore. And not do I not have it. I don't know if I'm ever going to have it again. And so, like you said, there's this grief. There's this grieving that we go through. And there are various ways that each of us deals with that. And so you mentioned that things started to turn around for you when you began to come to terms with both the the reds, the eating disorder side, and the concussion side. And so what does coming to terms with that mean to you? And what is some advice or encouragement you would have for any of our listeners who may be in that stage of still feeling like, why did this happen? And my life is different. And how do I come to terms with it? It's really hard. And therapy is a privilege. And I always say that. I think I said that on my um, takeover for pink that while I would love to say, oh, go to therapy, it'll help. It's a privilege. And I'm thankful that my family had the means and we have insurance and we were able to find a therapist that had availability and that could see me and that specialized in what I needed. But that's not true for so many people. And sometimes therapy is just not an option at the time, or it's not something that is accessible. And I hope that changes. I as somebody going into the healthcare field, I hope we can make everything more accessible and make just healthcare across the board, whether it's physical or mental, something that everybody can receive regardless of where they live and socioeconomic status and insurance and all of the other like headache problems that come with getting treatment. Because if you need it, you need it and you deserve it. And my heart goes out to the people that aren't able to access it because they do deserve it and they need it just as badly, but there's just those barriers to getting it. Um, So if you can go to therapy, I would say therapy is an awesome option. Give it a chance. It doesn't mean that nothing's wrong with you physically. And if that's true, that's okay too. Um, It isn't this terrible thing that you should be able to cope with it on your own. Sometimes we need more help and sometimes we need to talk to somebody who's an outside view that isn't biased and can hear our story without reacting to it, but rather helping us dig a little bit deeper. Um, For me, that took seeing several different therapists. And sometimes that was just for different issues. Um, When I first got hurt, it was very rooted in how do I deal with all of these medical appointments and these symptoms. And as I got better, and as the reds and stuff started, it became let's focus more on that stuff, which required a different level of expertise. And after that first therapist, I was kind of like, well, if it didn't work for everything, why should I try somebody else? But it's like a teacher. Some people love their teacher. They think they're great. They learn great. They love the test. Other kids that sit in that same classroom can say, no, I hate how they teach. I, I'm not learning. I feel lost. And therapy is just like that. We have our own learning styles. We have our own uh, way that we respond to different types of therapy. And I would encourage you to try again if you have tried in the past and it didn't work. Um, That's a vague description because what does working look like? But it can be a lengthy process. It can take a lot of work. It can make you feel worse at the beginning. Um, 
but it can get better. And so therapy would be my first thing if it's accessible. If it's not, but maybe there's a group therapy option that can be good sometimes for finding some support and being with other people who understand what you're going through. But I also think that group can sometimes um, get us wrapped up in it because now we're dealing with people who do understand what we're going through, but that might kind of cannonball our symptoms in a way, if that makes sense of being so wrapped up in the physical stuff that we're not really digging into the psychological, um, like cognitive distortions and stuff that you as an individual are experiencing. And that's important too. Um, and what worked for one person might not work for somebody else. So to listen to somebody's story and hear, oh, this medicine didn't work for me or physical therapy was great. If you go to PT and it doesn't help you, it makes you wonder why not if it helped other people, but we just respond differently. We all have different needs. Um, so outside of that, I would say finding new hobbies and finding what you really love because I love sports. I always have, I've been an athlete pretty much my whole life in some capacity, but that's not, I'm not just an athlete. I'm a sister and a daughter and I have learned to love dogs, which I thought I hated my whole life. I never really liked dogs. I was kind of afraid of them. And once I started fostering these sick rescue puppies, I was like, wow, I really love dogs. Um, so now I have that passion and I started working with different organizations like Pink and finding my voice through that because I think sharing our stories and sharing our experience, whether that's literally sharing your story or using it to fuel your passion for something um, can help catalyze change and inspire innovation and just bring hope to other people that are struggling. And that feels really heartwarming to know that you're helping somebody else. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's what I would say, finding new things and therapy. And then if you need it, medication can help some people, but pretty much that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I really love how you pointed out that you found some new interests after your TBI. And I, I think with that loss of identity piece, for me, it was a lot of the things that I could do before I couldn't do anymore, but also the memory loss. And mm -hmm. so just like losing that sense of self and struggling just like with physical symptoms every day that just makes you feel like a stranger in your own body. Mm -hmm. Like, what is going on? I can't control my responses to this. And I'm feeling so off all the time. And I'm having emotional responses that aren't what I want them to be. And it just feels like chaos. Yeah. But for me, finding music had made a huge impact on my recovery. I never wrote a song before the brain injury. And I started writing music afterwards. And I was kind of able to, I don't know if placing my identity, I wouldn't say I started to place my identity in music, but in a sense I did, at least at first, because I went from, okay, well, I can do this thing. So this is something that I can identify myself with. And maybe finding some sort of hobby or something that can help you to cope with that loss of identity can help to bring you to a place of acceptance, finding a creative outlet or like Callie with dogs. I love that. <laughs> They're so sweet and so loyal and you can learn so much from animals. 
And so, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, how has navigating friendships and social circles been with your concussion symptoms and how does that look for you? It was hard at the beginning because I've always had a built-in group of best friends, sisters, a family through my sports teams that we were together so often that we had to be friends pretty much. And I think we would have been anyways, but I always had them and I always knew that my teammates had my back and I had theirs. And I think I took that for granted a little bit because I didn't realize that until I got hurt and was like, wow, I don't have the same circle of friends. And to find kind of my own identity going back to that, an identity can't be one thing. I'm not just a dog lover now. I, You have to be a, um, it's like a group of things. You're a person, a whole person with different interests and hobbies and your personality. And once I started just being myself and kind of embracing that things were going to be different and that's okay, I kind of just found my people. Um, and I'm thankful for that, that I was able to gravitate towards people that were similar and shared similar interests. And I think just giving it a shot and you have to learn to reach out, which I struggled with because I didn't have to, when I had my built-in team, I suddenly had to say, Hey, do you want to go watch TV show together after class? Do you want to go grab dinner? Do you want to go hiking this weekend? And that was really hard for me to be like, I don't really know anybody, but for me at college, everybody uh, was in the same position. So it was helpful that other people were asking me the same thing. So I didn't feel so strange, but I think just putting yourself out there and knowing that you will find your people and it's okay if they're not um, the same people that you've always hung out with, they can be different. You can have multiple groups of friends. I know that I have different groups of friends here at college that I do different things with each of them and that's okay. I don't have to be with them 24 seven. I can kind of not rotate between them, but see each of them at different times and do different activities and share different interests with each group. And that's okay. I don't have to have my little clique of four or five girls that I do everything with. I have my best friends, but I also have smaller groups of really good friends, or I'd even say best friends. And you just have to branch out and if you end up not being friends, that's okay. You can be acquaintances and you can just kind of try again, which is really hard to do and socially intimidating. But once you do, and once you find your people, you'll be thankful that you reached out. I love that advice. Yes. And realizing that other people want connection too and want friendships too. So, you know, maybe reaching out, asking someone to talk or to get to know them better, it might seem daunting at first, but it's definitely something that we all crave connection. And so finding the right people that you can connect with and realize that, you know, for me, I used to feel like my brain injury made me so different that I couldn't relate to anyone because of all the trauma. And I had to get over and realize that my friends might not understand what I've been through, but they can still love me and they can still be there for me, even if they don't understand everything. And so that has been helpful. But then also having other friends that have brain injuries that do understand and get it. And so forming relationships, whether through the online 
community or in-person support groups can be really beneficial as well. So I wanted to ask you about your coping strategies. So I hinted at that at the beginning, but I'd love to ask you, you have been learning to manage PCS in your day-by-day life. And so what are some things that help you? Is it a routine? Um, what, What are the coping strategies that help you the best to be able to have the best quality of life that you can with your symptoms? A routine is definitely probably the biggest one. Um, I always needed a routine. And when I got hurt, losing that routine was just threw me chaos. Um, Some people thrive off of not having it. So it's not for everybody. But I needed a rough outline of what my day was going to look like. And I still do that. I know I wake up early. So I'm usually up between five and six, if not earlier. And I know like I'm going to get up, I'm going to eat my breakfast. I'm going to shower. I have my morning routine. And then I know when I have classes, I, if I have big spans of time between classes, I briefly write down what assignments I need to get done. Or if I'm going to stop by and see a friend, I might just put in like social. Um, and then I know I usually like going to the gym in the morning. So if I can go before class, I usually do that. And I put all of this in my calendar, which sounds so silly. And people think it's ridiculous that I write in, go to gym. I can go to the gym anytime that it's open or I can go hiking anytime. But when I write it in there, it kind of solidifies it for me. Like if I don't go, that's fine, but it keeps me to that schedule. And for PCS, I think it's really important to continue living. Um, Rest is important, but so is exposure. And if we don't go out and do things, our brain doesn't have the opportunity to rewire and it's wiring to a dark room by yourself. So it's going to make your symptoms harder to resolve long-term. So I know that when I have symptoms, as long as I can function, I'm going to go and do what I was going to do. Maybe I need to sit down or I need to leave a little early, or maybe I step outside for a few minutes and just sit there and breathe and kind of close my eyes and relax. But I make an effort to go. Um, if I'm vomiting, that's kind of my line of do I go or do I not? If my bi- migraines are to a point that I'm vomiting or I'm passing out, that's usually when I'm like, okay, this is when I need some rest. But I might go for a light walk with a friend or I might ask them to do something quieter so that I can join them or have them come to me and we can quietly do something so that my brain's still learning that it's okay. Um, but it's definitely a fine line and we all have to walk our own. That's just what works for me. Um, other than that, communication. Um, when I first got hurt, I kind of held everything inside me and I still do sometimes, but when I learned to talk about what was going on and to say, Hey, I'm, I have a migraine. Can we do something different? Or I'm struggling with this activity because it's really hard due to X, Y, or Z symptom. People understood. And then it was kind of getting the elephant out of the room because people knew what was going on, but I wasn't talking about it. So neither were they. And it was just kind of a little bit of attention that nobody knew was there until I started talking. And we don't know what each other are thinking. So if I was struggling with something, people can't read my mind. But if I communicate that I'm struggling with it or I need some help, it doesn't make me weak. It just means that we have different strengths and weaknesses. And nine times out of 10, if not 9.9 times out of 10, that person is more than willing to help me, but I have to communicate that to them. 
Um, and then coming up with my, I have a little coping strategies box of just things that I know I can go to if I'm struggling more so emotionally than physically. So I'll have, um, like kinetic sand, which is just fun to kind of play with. I have a stress ball. Um, I have a little thing of essential oils. Um, some people put like lollipops in for, um, like a taste grounding skill. I like to put in like fuzzy socks just as a reminder of, Hey, you can relax. I have some pictures of my dogs in there just to get my mind off of whatever's going on. And then I have a list of other strategies that I like. So for me, taking a cold shower usually helps kind of blunt my emotional response a little bit to a point that I can think more rationally or going for a walk or um, watching a little bit of Netflix or something. I have a list of different things that I know helps. So if I'm struggling, I can just go and I don't have to think about it. I just kind of pick something and then I go and do it. Even if it's just for five minutes, it usually gets me to a place that I can then think a little more rationally and I can come up with a bigger plan of what's going on and what do I have to do to cope with this situation? It just takes me out of that acute instinctive response of I need to do more. I failed at this, so I can't do this anymore. It just brings me to a point of I can do this. It was one thing or just because this was really hard doesn't mean that everything is going to be hard. I can still do this activity and then I'll come back to it. And you have to know your limits and what works for you. Um, but I find it helps to separate emotion and life sometimes so that you can come back and process it, but not at such a acute level. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love your idea for a coping strategies box. I think that's genius. I, that's amazing to put these things that you know are going to help you or remind you together in one place that you can go to whenever you need it. I think our listeners will definitely find encouragement in that. And maybe some will start one. If you do, send us an email and let us know. And I'll let Callie know that she inspired you. So before you go, my last question is based on the theme of this podcast, which is called Hope Survives. And I always like to ask our guests, what is one final piece of encouragement or hope that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I think I would say it can always get better. And don't let go of that hope. I know it's so, so, so hard. And it's so easy to get caught up in what's happening right now, but especially if it's a brain injury, our brains have neuroplasticity and every day there's new research coming out. Even just looking back several years ago, our concussion protocols now are completely different and almost exactly the opposite of sit in a dark room and cocoon to um, Buffalo treadmill protocol and you should be active. So years ago when that was a thing, that felt hopeless and a lot of people struggled with symptoms as we found out more about the brain and how it works and what a concussion is, we were able to adapt and come up with new treatments. So now we know physical therapy and vestibular therapy and aerobic exercise are all helpful. And these are things we didn't know. So just hold on to the fact that we're always learning and our brain is always learning too. And whatever we do is how our brain is going to respond in the future. So if you need more help, thinking about that. You can talk to your doctors, your therapists, your family, but know that 
it's not the end. It's there is a future. You have a future. You have other things waiting for you in life and life can be beautiful, but sometimes it can be hard and that's okay too. And you can acknowledge that, but you got to hold on for the things that can be better in the future. Um, and reach out, talk to people, communicate, um, something that somebody that I love that passed away acutely during my injury once said to me was hold each other's hands, listen to each other's stories, be warriors for kindness and peace. Look at those around you with soft eyes because we're all fighting the same hard war, just different battles with different names. And that's how I wrapped up my um, pink story. And that's how I wanted to wrap this up too, because I think it's true. Even if your friends and family don't understand or your doctors because they haven't lived it, they still can be there for you. You can still talk to them. And just like you would want a friend to talk to you if something was going on, even if you've not experienced it, you can talk to them and you can share what's going on. It's not going to be the end of the world. Your friends are not going to think you're crazy. There are people out there. There is hope. There is new advancements and you will find new things that you love if you put some time into it. And we all support you and, yeah. I love it. That's so encouraging and so great. Callie, thank you so much for sharing your story and encouragement with us today. I know that it's probably barely scratched the surface of everything you've gone through, but I know that our listeners are encouraged right now. So thank you so much for sharing. And uh, we'll, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I'm so impressed by you, your your grace and just the way that you navigate the world with your concussion. It's so inspiring and encouraging. And so definitely we'll keep in touch. And if our listeners want to connect with you. My Instagram is Callie, C-A-L-I, period, L-O-N-A-R-D-E-L-L-I. Um, you're always welcome to message me on there and I'll send Crystal my email as well. You can always email me. Um, you can also reach out to us at Pink Concussions as I'm the intern that um, takes in a lot of the messages. So I'd be happy to respond to you there as well. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so thankful for you and for everything that you've done and continue to do for people with brain injuries. And um, yeah, thank you for having me. It was an honor to have you, and I hope to have you out again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to Hope Survives Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned as more episodes will be coming each week. And check out hopeafterheadinjury.com for more. I'll see you next time, and remember, there's always hope.